Hi, welcome to Waterstone Sermon Podcast. We're so glad that you've tuned in to join us today to study God's Word. Here at Waterstone, we exist to help people become like Jesus and live for others. What this means practically is that we gather together as one body to seek God's heart for justice, to serve together, and to connect with one another as the body of Christ. We hope that you'll join us for one of our weekend services soon. We gather on Saturday nights at 5 p.m. and on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. We look forward to meeting you in person, and we hope that you enjoy today's sermon. I want to let you know uh, in our flow of worship that the high point will be after the message when we today celebrate the Lord's Supper together. So even now, we want to begin uh, encouraging you to prepare your mind, your heart, to be at that table with the Lord Jesus. We look forward to that time. And everything we do in the next uh, half hour during this time is really preparation to, to meet with Jesus this morning. You know, uh, some of you, if you've been around Waterstone for any time, you know that we are rather subversively following the church calendar. And uh, we do that for two reasons. One is we love the vision of Revelation 7 where all the church is gathered before God's throne, every tribe, language, tongue, nation. And so we want to be a, experience that by participating in liturgies at certain times when we know that, you know, billions of other brothers and sisters are doing the same thing all in the same day. Can you imagine what that looks like for God? So we love the idea of globally being connected the other reason we do it is, is to be connected timelessly, to say the words that our four brothers and four sisters shared together, who are now in that great cloud of witnesses actually participating from um, heaven. And so to be connected with the dead who are alive in the presence of God. So we love this idea of liturgy and being connected to the ancient church calendar. So uh, yesterday, probably some of you heard that we entered the new season in the church called Epiphany, January 6th. Epiphany means to show forth. And it's a period of time in the calendar when we take on, again, our mission to show the light of Christ to the world, to allow the world to experience what it's like to encounter Jesus through us. And so we have this idea of showing forth through uh, our interactions uh, with the world, the, the beauty, the light, the love of Jesus. The text in the Eastern Orthodox Church that's traditionally preached uh, on Epiphany is Jesus' baptism. You remember when the Father spoke from heaven in front uh, of the world, but he spoke to his Son and he said, you are my beloved. In you I am well pleased. And just as the Father wants the world to see his Son and know his Son, in this season we are mindful that that's our calling now. That we too want the world to know the beloved one and to be well pleased with him. And so we're entering a series uh, during this epiphany, during the month of January, that we're calling the wisdom of life. And we took that title wisdom because that's the way the ancients would have described what we're trying to do. This idea of walking a path to demonstrate and display God and his love and the way the world works, they called it wisdom. And so we're going to be talking about wisdom 
as showing Christ to the world over these next few weeks. And this idea uh, of wisdom, we're going to talk today about how we do it with words. Next week we're going to talk, Paul's going to preach on how we transfer our faith to the next generation. And then we're going to third week talk about anger and how we, by keeping our poise and using our anger towards righteousness, it's a huge demonstration of the light of Christ to the world. <laughs> and may I say it? Especially in an election year. <laughs> and then lastly, we're going to talk about anxiety and again how the Holy Spirit can give us that poise to, to live through seasons of anxiety together. How's that sound? Wisdom of life. That's where we're going. Epiphany. Happy and holy epiphany be upon us as we go. Well, let's talk about words. Uh, I thought it'd be good, did some research this week. I f found, according to the uh, Massachusetts Institute of Technology, ooh, uh, <laughs> here is the world's hardest tongue twister. See if you can do it. Let's do it three times real fast together, right? Pad kid, poured, curled, pulled, cod. Pad kid, poured, <laughs> pad kid, poured, curled, pulled. What do you think? World's hardest? How'd you do? You know, um, words are interesting, and so the Bible has a lot to say about interesting words. And nowhere more than in the Proverbs. And in the Proverbs, there's actually a lot of tongue twisting that goes on. In fact, here is a way that uh, Proverbs generally talk about words. Proverbs 18, verse 21, we read, The tongue has the power of life and death. And those who love it will eat its fruit. So you say, oh, come on, life and death? Life and death, really? I mean, isn't that like overreach? That's a bit of rhetorical flourish from some ancient writer, life and death. Maybe if you're an air traffic controller. You know, I read, I read a story a while back of July 2020 at Charles de Gaulle Airport in Paris that a slip of the tongue by an air traffic controller brought two huge planes over the airport within 300 feet of each other because he said an L instead of an R. Okay, if you're an air traffic controller, I get it. But really, I'm, what's the point of the verse? It's actually a language tool called a merism. A merism is when you set the extreme edges, life and death, and it means to say that everything in between life and death is affected by words. These puffs of air that vibrate the inner ear, they matter a lot, and a wise person is a person who weighs their words. Now, in this idea of the power of life and death, what I want to do as we go through this together, thinking about how we can be epiphany to the world, I want us to think about the power of words, first of all, and then from there I want to go into the Proverbs a little deeper and see how to use the words. The Proverbs are fascinating with some of the ways they encourage us to use words. And then lastly, I want to talk about how we can heal our words. So the power of words, how we use them, and then we'll end and go to the table of the Lord by understanding how to have our words healed. So let's think about the power of words. 
it's a really a theology of words because if you believe in God and, in, and through Christ have come to know him, then you understand that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in Trinity have been talking to each other and about each other from all eternity. Imagine. I mean, God is a communicative God. He is always talking through the things he's made. He's always talking through the scriptures he's given us. He's always talking to our inner self by his spirit. God loves to talk. And so we, being made in his image, we talk and know how to use words and in our best moments understand how powerful words are. I mean, God himself, because he's a talker, he knows the absolute joy of what it is to be able to get something deep in here, out there, and to bless another person. He knows that joy. He also knows the joy from living in Trinity of what it means for a word to come from the outside in. You are my son. I am well pleased in you. Can you imagine? I mean, how powerful that is. God knows. He's made us in his image, so we have an awareness of how powerful words are. In fact, being made in his image, you know, sometimes I think we, we remember that we are stewards of the creation. We take care of that. We remember that we're stewards of our material things and our material wealth, but sometimes we forget we're also stewards of words, that we are to use words to create reality and bless reality. Words. We're stewards of words. Nowhere do we see that more clearly in the creation account. Remember in Genesis 2 when God, and there's this joy, this text is wrapped in joy, and God's just, you know, I can, arms, he doesn't have arms, but arms folded, and he says to Adam, Adam, I'm going to bring an animal to you, and I just want to see what you're going to call it. <laughs> it's the power of naming. And so this power of naming, you know, to name something is to know the essence of the thing. And how much joy did God have? And, and the names were adopted to see, uh, you know, Adam name the animals. And God's saying, I love it, I love it, I love it. To name something is to control the perception of the thing. And then that's the power, controlling perception, to influence attitude toward the thing. And then that power, influencing attitude, is the power to suggest action toward the thing. Now... Some of you are already thinking and knowing where I'm going with this. I mean, who knows the power of words better than advertisers, right? Advertisers, that smelly green bar of soap in the shower, it's not called Celtic Swamp. It's called, it's called what? Of course, control perception, influence attitude, suggest action. All right, that uh, commercial with the deep, rich voice, you're in good hands with all, not greasy fingers, good hands, good hands. Or out in the golf course, some of you know, that driver you pull out of the bag. It's not called garter snake, it's called what? Cobra King, King Cobra. Yeah, I'm not a golf, so I probably switched those around. Thanks, Tim. So, uh, advertise, you know who else knows the power of naming and the power of words? Cultural influencers. And they, by controlling perception, influencing attitude, and suggesting action, they know the power of naming. So, for instance, in the abortion debate, what is that thing in the womb? Is it a baby? Or is it an unwanted pregnancy? You control the naming, you influence attitude, 
and suggest action. You know who else knows the power of words? Children. Children know the power of words. Proverbs chapter 12, we read this astounding verse, the words of the reckless pierce like swords, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. It's a, it's a visual metaphor, is it not? You can stab a sword into a, a body and you can pull the sword back out, but what stays? The wound. The wound. And because children, they don't have the grid yet that comes by being able in certain moments to put people in certain categories like reckless. They believe their parents and other adult uh, you know, figures in their life are the massive authority in their life. And so when a parent or an adult figure in a child's life says something reckless, they might want to pull the sword out, but the wound stays. And some of you right now in this moment are going back to a period in your childhood, a moment when some adult said something stupidly reckless to you. And you're still trying to wrestle the Heavenly Father's knowledge that He's the one who ultimately knows the essence of the thing, you. I'll never forget reading uh, The Joy Luck Club and Amy Tan talks about an eight-year-old girl who was a chess champion, national champion as an eight-year-old. And she became so good that her mother became envious of her. And, and instead of, you know, dealing with that herself, her chosen path was to cash in, literally, on her daughter's fame and fortune and push her harder and harder and harder. Countless hours for an eight-year-old spent becoming even better. When the eight-year-old girl pushed back on her mother, her mother decided to go into the silent treatment. Not just for a day, not just for a week, but for weeks after weeks. And it wilted the spirit of the eight-year-old girl. And she begged her mother to forgiveness. And finally, when the mother spoke, she said to her eight-year-old daughter, You are nothing, nothing at all. And as an adult, this eight-year-old wrote this. What she said to me was like a curse. This power I had, this belief in what I had been given, and I could actually feel it draining away. All the secrets that I once saw, I couldn't see anymore. And all I could see were my mistakes and my weaknesses, and the best part of me disappeared. I'm, I get verklept about, about that. I'm sorry, but I've sat in my office and heard similar. Do we understand the power of words? You know, you go back to Proverbs 18.21 and you read the second part of the verse. It reads, the tongue has the power of life and death and those who love it will eat its fruit. And What's the it? Well, the only antecedent that's feminine that the it can refer to is the Hebrew word power. Those who love the power will eat its fruit. 
the assumption there, those who respect the power of the tongue and use it to bless will have a fruitful life. You heard a story about cursing. Here's one that's very personal to me about blessing. When I was 17 years old, I was going into my senior year of high school. I grew up in an Air Force family, and so I had my track laid out to go into the Air Force. But that summer, I had a, an appendix that ruptured, and it was a bad one. And I ended up being in the hospital for a long time and then missing a lot of school. And so began to really um, try to figure out what this next year was going to look like and what you know, my career path was going to be uh, after that. Now, while I was in the hospital, a deacon from my church came to see me. I'm a 17-year-old kid, and this is a deacon named Eric Pelton. I knew him as Mr. Pelton. And, you know, I didn't really know him at all. We had worked together in the Awana program, Awana as a kid's club back in the day. And um, I'm lying there. Eric Pelton comes in to see me, and he says to me, Larry, I've been watching you these last months. I watched you in, in the Iwana. I really think you should consider going into Christian ministry. Here we are. <laughs> Here we are. The power of a man's word to a 17-year-old kid spoke a new reality. Do we, I'm going to put the question on the board, on the, on the board, this, <laughs> the screens. How fully aware are you of the power your words have to hurt and to heal? So, understanding how powerful words are. The Proverbs goes on to give guidance about how to use them. And we only, you could spend a whole year preaching about words from the Proverbs and how to use them. We have about 10 minutes we're going to pack it into. And I'm going to do it by using a couple of pairings together. So the first pairing is that as we use powerful words in this time of epiphany, we must understand that we should use words with honesty and for healing. Honesty and healing is the first pairing of the use of words. And I think we have some Proverbs wrapped around them, honest and healing. An honest witness tells the truth, but a false witness tells lies. A soothing tongue is a tree of life, but a perverse tongue crushes the spirit. Now, if we hold that for just a minute, notice honest witness. What the Proverbs does is says, look, when we're thinking about how we talk, we should talk as if we're a witness in a court hearing with our hand on a stack of Bibles. We should be truth tellers. We should be describing reality as accurately as we can. We must be honest. Because if we're not honest, two things happen. First, the person we're talking to, we're going to fray their reality and perhaps lead them down a wrong path. And then in the larger focus, if we're not honest in our conversations, we're going to fray the community and lose trust. 
So it's very important that we are people who are honest, honest about ourselves, honest about what's going around, honest about what we've seen, what we think, honesty. But sometimes, as you know, if you've had honest conversations, they can be fierce. They can be costly to tell the truth sometimes. And so it's not only that we're honest, but the balanced of the pairing is that we also speak towards healing. And did you notice the metaphor, a tree of life, an image all throughout Scripture. In fact, it's the beginning and the end of being the kind of source where people can take fruit from us, fruit from our words, and it nourishes them as fruit nourishes our bodies. It's a restorative. It's a uh, uh, something that uh, makes new the power of words. And often, if honesty is describing things accurately, healing the tree of life is defining reality accurately again and again and again. Let me illustrate. So when a young couple sits down and they've asked me to marry them, I actually preach the, the marriage message to them twice. I preach uh, twice because the, one, the second one, when I preach at the wedding, they won't remember a single word uh, that's said that day. So I actually preach it to them before the wedding. And one of the things, you know, I, if any of you, a number of you probably heard me do what, I basically have the same speech every time. Because what I want them to understand is what marriage is. Marriage is designed for growth. So if you're growing, that is, if it's painful, that is, if it's a slow way to be crucified, it's working. <laughs> I want them to know that from day one. And then second, I want them to know that the purpose of marriage is not only growth, but it's gospel. That you are actually called in the community, here's Epiphany, in the community and in the world to love each other such that when people see how you love each other as a married couple, they see something of how Jesus loves the church. That's a high calling. That puts a lot of weight, good weight on the, the covenant. So that's why, what, why we marry. That's why, well, that explains the spiritual discipline. Now, what I want them to know is that in that first part about growth, one of the key components about growth in a marriage, and by the way, this transfers to friendship, transfers to parenting, transfers to friendships. Um, one of the ways that a married couple comes in is they have now two people coming together with accumulated verdicts of who they are. Things that the world has told them, things that adults have told them from their past. They come into the relationship with accumulated verdicts. And the worst verdicts that two people come together with are those head-playing words that we think to ourselves about we're worthless, we have nothing to offer, we're, uh, I wish I could be a whole different person, those kind of tapes that play. So you have two people, accumulated verdicts coming together, and if they don't get some input about those lies that they've accumulated, it's going to be a rough go. And so one of the callings of the marriage is to learn to speak words of healing, to be trees of life to one another in the marriage. In other words, what the spouse's job is, is to use words to help their spouse know the reality of who they are. And do you know what that reality is? If they're following Jesus, they are holy and beautiful and righteous. That's how Jesus sees them. And so the job of a spouse is to own that opinion and help their spouse see it every moment. 
That's the calling. To use words to remind our spouse that the only opinion of you that counts is Jesus' opinion. So we use words that way. The tree of life. So let me put this question on the screen to you. As you think about your words being honest and healing, do I work to speak words of healing? Take that with you today. Wrestle with that. How can you be epiphany in using words to heal? The second pairing is uh, gentle and strong. And uh, we hear some Proverbs around, a lot of talk in the Proverbs about having words be gentle. Through patience, a ruler. And the word there is actually like a military commander, like a strong, fierce person. Through patience, a strong, fierce person can be persuaded. And a gentle tongue can break a bone. There's a good one. (laughs) It's a Hebrew idiom, break a bone. And in the ancient world, you, you would say break a bone if you were going to work at applied pressure over a long period of time, the bone would finally snap. Uh, how's that for a good image? <laughs> a gentle tongue can break. In other words, it's gentleness that's strong. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. So think about this idea of gentle. Gentle doesn't actually describe the content of the words, right? It actually describes what? The tone, the environment, the way that you're going to present the words needs to be gentle because if it's gentle it'll break a bone it'll wear it down think of the opposite of gentle the opposite of gentle is harsh and usually when do we speak harsh words when we want to win when we want to prove someone wrong when we're angry harsh gentle is this idea of controlling tone and, and setting an environment where things can be heard. You, you think of it this way. If you're the one and you have to say a hard but gentle word to someone, what do you want them thinking on the other side of the table from you? You want them thinking something like this. I, I'm here. I don't like this person right now. I don't really think I'm going to like what they're going to say. But because of the effort and the way they're going to say it, I get the sense they care. I get the sense they love me. And so I might listen. Might. (laughs) Gentle breaks the bone. So this idea of gentleness and and, and strength, I... I, (laughs) I want to step on some toes, if you'll allow me. If you go into the New Testament, this word gentleness is all over the place as well. And one of the most well-known places the word appears to describe our conversations is in 1 Peter 3.15. It says, revere Christ and be prepared to explain to everybody the hope that you have. And then there's this how clause. How, if any of you remember the verse, with gentleness and respect with gentleness and respect what peter is taking from the wisdom literature is this that when we come to exchanging worldviews with other people 
and explaining ours and this hope that we have. We should do it fiercely, boldly, honestly, but with gentleness and respect. So here's where I want to step on some toes. This is going to be one of those years. Who knows what I'm talking about? An election year. This is going to be one of those years when that verse is tested among us. And I want to begin right now, before the first primary, praying over Waterstone and the global, well, at least the American church, 1 Peter 3.15, that we would exchange our worldviews and our political views, but we would do it with gentleness and respect. I want to share something with you. Two years ago, the elders... Um, as we were doing strategic planning, launched an initiative that we wanted to be a Revelation 7 church. A Revelation 7, again, is that picture of the church before the throne of God in all eternity, and there's people there, you know it, from every tribe and language, tongue, and nation. That's the beautiful picture. And that's what Waterstone is called to be a preview of now. So one of the things we wanted to do was take a hard look at ourselves in terms of racism and uh, you know, uh, diversity and, and people of color. We, we spent the first year and we interviewed over 50 people of color, persons of color, who attend Waterstone. It was an amazing experience. And there was good news and hard news. The good news is, as far as like interacting in our public you know, spaces like this, we didn't get one really hard knock at all. People feel welcome. They feel we honor. The only thing I remember, we got a couple of uh, brown brothers and sisters who said, when you talk about race, you always say white and black. You should say brown once in a while, too. <laughs> that was really good. We've tried. So we got some really good input. The hard news that we got was we have people who attend Waterstone, they're people of color, and they've actually been injured by other brothers and sisters at Waterstone. How? You could probably guess. Facebook. When people at Waterstone go on Facebook to espouse political views on, for instance, immigration, and they categorize a whole race or color of people as drug dealers and murderers and criminals in their rage against whatever their views on immigration are. They injure brothers and sisters who you are sitting among now. I want to plead with you for gentleness and respect, even as you espouse political views on Facebook. Can I press even harder? What the heck does espousing your political views on Facebook accomplish anyway? Seriously. Are you gonna bring in the kingdom of God? Really? Facebook does two things, tribalism 
feels good to have other people saying amen, amen of your tribe. And it just gives a place for people. I'm not going to say that. We're being recorded <laughs> on there. <laughs> I, I just don't understand it. I truly don't. I'm pleading for gentleness and respect as we espouse our political views and our worldviews. One other place I want to press down in it. Everyone take a deep breath. That's over. We're done with that. <laughs> a couple weeks ago, someone out in the hub said, Larry, Larry, what's the big idea for 2024? And what they meant was, where's Waterstone going in 2024? And I I said back to them, I said, where we're going is where we've been going hard the last few years. We're going to our neighbor. We're going to our neighbor. Neighboring. The big idea for 2024, where's Waterstone going? We're going neighboring. What's neighboring? Neighboring is praying for our neighbors, the people with whom we live, work, and play, by name every week. Because if you pray for them, your heart goes to them. Second part of neighboring is you, when you see them, engage in a conversation without stalking them, but you go, drop what you're doing and you go and you talk to them. Why? Because conversations build relationship. It's the power of words. Words go from surface to serious to spiritual. And the more conversations you have, you get to a place where you can talk about spiritual things. So you pray, your heart goes to them, you converse with them, their heart goes to you, and then the goal, the, the place you want to go to, is to do the most loving thing you can do for any person, and that's share Jesus with them. And that's where I want to push us in 2024, to get to that third space, to get to that place where you will actually bring Jesus, where you will tell the hope that you have inside gently and respectfully. In fact, what I'd like to do is put a challenge in front of us. I'd like you to commit with me that at least one time this year, we will intentionally bring Jesus into a conversation with a neighbor. And then what I'd ask you to do is let us know. Send a note to Emily. Send a note to Paul or myself, we, we want to know. We want to begin getting the anecdotal piece of this. Let me just say it this way. Can you imagine what the Holy Spirit would do if a thousand people at Waterstone one time this year shared Jesus with another person? What will happen? I'd love to find out. We would see it. So are you with me on that? Would you be willing to begin to pray about how you are going to intentionally share Jesus with another person this year? Out as you leave on the tables, we have these little story books. I think I have one here. Uh, in, in the, and uh, if you need to brush up a little bit on how to even share Jesus with another person, or this is actually designed that you can actually sit down with the person and read it together and talk it through. Grab one of these on your way out. Really, really well done way to share Jesus with another person. All right, gentle and strong. The third one we're gonna cruise here a little bit is uh, apt and appropriate. 
is the third pairing. And here's the, um, here's the proverb in Proverbs 25. Like apples of gold in settings of silver is a ruling rightly given. It's funny, the Hebrew scholars have no idea what apples of gold in settings of silver means, except it's probably more valuable than a red delicious apple. The idea is of if uh, chosen words are extremely valuable. And the context of many of these are a ruling or a place of conflict. And quickly, we'll get to the point. The point is, especially when we need to have a, an important conversation uh, because of misunderstanding. Uh, I often think of these kinds of verses when I have to have a talk with one of my uh, adult sons about something significant, about something I, I want to have a conversation with them about the choices or, you know, just adult. I, so I might get an amen on this, but I found adult parenting to be even harder than young child parenting. <laughs> And the reason is those conversations are difficult, are they not? Like, you can't just say, go to your room anymore. <laughs> you have to think it out. And I've even gone to counseling a couple of times to help. And the best advice I got from a counselor once about this kind of thing, uh, golden apples and silver settings, working on it, he said, you have to have a two to three minute conversation with your son about this issue. You need to work harder, as hard as you'd work on a regular sermon, which is 20 hours a week. And you need to think through exactly when, where, and how you want to have this conversation. That's a lot. That's an awful lot. But that's where you get the gold apples. When you have to have a hard conversation, think it through. Right person, right time, right place, right words. What's the goal? Third, or this is three and a half. This, uh, Proverbs chapter 10, verse 19. Uh, if you say, what's the most repeated wisdom the Proverbs gives about using words? It's this. Sin is not ended by multiplying words. <laughs> but the prudent hold their tongues. James, Jesus' half-brother, brought that into the New Testament when he wrote, you know, be quick to listen and slow to speak. MIT, told you, I did some research this week, 16,000 words is what the average person says, which they took the eight words from an introvert and the 30,000 words from an extrovert. and they <laughs> 16,000 words. Do the math, if, uh, if that's uh, 72 to 73 year lifespan, that's 860 million words in a lifetime. If every word's a second, that's 860 million seconds. Did the math, that's 9,000 days of talking. That's really good, that's a lot. 9,000 days of talking. Now, the Proverbs would say, Here's the wisdom. Here's how to be epiphany. Shoot for one day less. One day less. And then shoot for another day less. Less. Fewer the better when it comes to words. Fewer the better. Why? Because if it's more is your goal, you're more likely to get into trouble. But here's the even bigger reason. If you're already talking for 9,000 days, you're not listening during 9,000 days. And listening is the goal. All right. 
I've, put, I've dumped a whole lot of stuff on you today. This is like, oh, you must be feeling like shoulders pressed down. What? I can't do this. I can't, I can't speak honestly and healing and gentle and strong, appropriate, apt, and talk less. Are you kidding me? And I say to you, you're right. You can't. Not alone. You can't. And besides that, if that's your goal, it's just to work on words, you're starting in the wrong place. Because where do words come from? The heart. That's the place to start. Jesus said it this way in Mark chapter 12. Make a tree good and its fruit will be good, or make a tree bad, its fruit will be bad, for a tree is recognized by its fruit. You brood of vipers, just to, he's talking to his pastors there, so we're good. How can you who are evil say anything good? For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. The mouth speaks what the heart. So are you angry in your words? What's going on in your heart? Are you cutting people down, gossiping a lot to make yourself feel better and prop it up? What's going on in your heart? It starts in the heart. A mouth problem is a heart problem. What's going on? What, that's the heart. The heart is the control center of the active self. The heart is what we love. The heart is what we hope for. The heart is where we get our significance and our security. The heart is the ultimate value stamp. If it's in my heart, I'm going after it. What's in the heart? That's where we start. And so, we invite Jesus into our heart. We invite him to come and begin to work. We understand, first of all, think, this is so cool. Think about this with me. Jesus lived a life we should have lived, a life of perfect obedience. Do you know what that means? That not once did Jesus say an unnecessary word. Not once. Not once did Jesus say an untimely word. Not once did Jesus say a word intended to needlessly hurt. Even the brood of vipers was to try and wake up pastors to get saved. He used, talk about golden apples and silver settings. Jesus. And it's not only that. It's not only that he's our model of how he used words, but he's, he's the word. He is the word. He's the alpha and omega, the beginning and the end. He is the director of history. He's the creator of all things, including you and me. He is the word, the explanation of everything. But how does he come into our heart and heal our words? This way. Stay with me. We're coming to the table. This way. The one who is the alpha and omega, the word of God, is the one who experienced the silent treatment from God. On the cross, Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which is another way of saying, Father, why have you stopped talking to me? And this begins to weigh on us because you know, we know deep down, we are the ones that deserve the silent treatment. We turned our back on God and went our own way and used words to tear down people and distort reality. We're the ones that deserve the silent treatment. Jesus took the silent treatment in our place. Why? So that in taking our sins on him, taking them all the way to hell, 
Through his resurrection, he could proclaim victory and disarm the evil, but also say the words from the outside that each one of us needs to hear, desperate to hear, you are my daughter, you are my son, in you I am well pleased. Jesus took the silent treatment we deserved so that we could get the blessing that Jesus deserved. That's love. To the degree that we understand that love is the degree that we will walk through life with words like this. I don't need to lie to make myself look better. I don't need to lie because I know the opinion that God the Father through Christ has of me. That's the only opinion that counts. I don't need to lie to make it better. I don't need to cut people down with gossip and by saying harsh things about people. Jesus loves them. And besides, I have the blessing from him. I don't need to cut people down to feel better. Jesus loves me. To the degree that that gospel sits deeply in our heart is the degree our heart gets healed and our words turn to healing and blessing. What I want to do as we come to the table is put two questions up on the screen and give you 30, 45 seconds to process these questions. Have you become a child of God? You know, the starting point for healing words is to actually become a follower of Jesus and get a new heart. And the Bible says if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. And you get new heart and new words and a longing to bless. Have you received Jesus as your Lord and Savior? It's as simple as saying, Lord, I'm yours. I'm yours. Some of you need to answer that question. All of us need to answer, who needs your words in these times? Who needs your words this week? Your healing words. Let's just give Jesus our mind and heart on these questions, and then we'll come to the table.